Hello everybody, this is the Centre for Innovation in Education, Liverpool University, uh, our Treasure Island Pedagogies podcast. And I've got three guests here. And by coincidence or slight manufacturing, we have got a lot of M's. We would like you to hear a light bulb moment when you felt your students were getting it and what made that happen. And you can also talk about your teaching prop and your uh, pedagogy and a luxury item as well that you would take to your treasure islands. So I'm Catherine Whitehurst and I'm from the communications and media department uh, and my light bulb moment actually comes from students not getting it. Um, so I had been teaching for a number of years in Canada and Scotland um, before coming to England and um, I'd always done a kind of a pretty basic seminar where you, you assign a reading and then you as a group answer questions together and um, when I got to England I, I realized that people are, are very reserved in a way that North Americans and a lot of Scottish people aren't um, they may be a bit more forthcoming in their opinions and my students um, weren't really keen on this set of exchanges and I also found that um, you always had a couple groups that were really strong but then you had one seminar group where um, the kids maybe didn't engage as much and there was suddenly a disconnect because it was like this sense that well nobody else in the class is doing the work so I'm not going to do the work and they didn't realize that all this other work was happening in these other seminars that they were missing out on. So I had these two problems and I wasn't quite sure how to fix them. <laughs> um, so I started paying attention to how my students interact while they're waiting for my lecture to start. And what I realized is that they all sit around their devices and they're on their devices and they're chatting to each other through their devices, but then they're also chatting to each other in person. <laughs> and I thought, this is what this is what my students need is a, a mediator. So I decided to scrap my seminars and do a giant workshop where I had the whole uh, lecture group together. So we're talking about probably anywhere between 70 to 90 students. Mm -hmm. And uh, myself and a colleague, what we would do is we put them into different groups and we'd have them sign on to teams and we'd have a task for them. So they might have to complete a storyboard or they might have to uh, create a, a video or, or different types of tasks that they had to work on as a group. And we had the um, template of what they needed to do already uploaded onto Teams uh, within these kind of groups. And each week they would work with different people. So it was never the same people they got circulated. And then what we did is we, project the teens on screen at the front of the classroom and as we were walking around and talking to them what we about what they were doing we'd go up to the front of the room and say guys let's all click into group 11 because they've done this really amazing thing and we'd show them what they had done and what what that did is it made them competitive we <laughs> realized that some of their classmates were doing amazing work and that if they wanted to keep up that they needed to do this work too so our engagement went up but it also meant the kids in class that were really introverted and talking was quite hard 
what we found what they were doing was instead of talking in their group they were just typing stuff in Mm-hmm. And so suddenly we were mm-hmm. getting participation from kids that were really quiet. And sometimes you wouldn't even realize that they were engaging. They just were really shy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was really great for the students who were super extroverts because they suddenly realized that these kids hadn't just come unprepared for class. Actually, they were prepared. They're just quiet. And mm-hmm. so then mm-hmm. you could see students kind of taking some other students under their wing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So. This worked out really well when COVID hit (laughs) Mm -hmm. because our students were already working online. So um, we just moved it. So now we have the Zoom where we put them into breakout groups and then sometimes we bring them all together and like talk as a group about what's going on. Um, But that was kind of my aha moment. Brilliant, that's fantastic. So many layers of engagement and yeah, that's lovely. Matt, do you want to share your light bulb moments? Yeah, my name's uh, Matt Murphy, and I'm from uh, the Department of Mechanical Materials and Aerospace Engineering. I teach uh, engineering design. Okay, so I was I, I was walking around all of last week, really. I mean, not not thinking too hard, but did, but thinking a little about this question, and I couldn't land on uh, the right light bulb moment. And then uh, on Wednesday last week, believe it or not, I had my light bulb moment. Um, but actually, it, it it it's one that I have every year. Um, and it always happens in about week seven or about week eight, so about this time of year. Um, by way of background, our, our MNG programs, our integrated master's programs, are built around really what we call a capstone project. Four semester projects uh, in year three and four worth 45 credits altogether, and they're all group design. So students work with each other to design, build, manufacture, and put to use a real engineering product. Um, so you've probably seen the most photogenic ones of those, which are uh, the Formula Student Car, the single seat race car that our students compete in the University Grand Prix at Silverstone in. Yeah, all it's this. been on the BBC as well, wasn't it? On Channel 4 News this year, oh, we're, last we're always, year. Yeah. yeah, engineers are always on telly. We, 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 give, we give good press. Um, <laughs> but, but then also in the same in the same category as that, I guess, is our, our Velocipede, our broken records in the Nevada desert, human-powered land speed records. So they're the most photogenic of these projects where groups of students design and build something real. But in the same module, I guess, there are um, there are other projects that, that are industrially led. So students choose from a portfolio of about eight. So they might choose those sporting ones or industry ones. As an example, we've just started a really exciting new one with Siemens Gamisa, who are the Spanish um, renewable energy part of Siemens. So they're wind turbines, basically. We're working with the their office in Denmark, uh, in Arborg, um, to design, build and install a land turbine to bring reliable refrigeration to some tomato farmers on Zanzibar. Um, it's, it's gone down wow, very that's well. That's a fantastic international project, isn't well, it? Yeah, students get to go to Zanzibar. And I don't know if you've seen Zanzibar, but it, it was an easy sell, this one. Um, there's, <laughs> there's a dozen students on that project. But again, so but they're, they're doing something not real to participate in a sporting event, but something that's actually hopefully going to change the lives of a group of people in the developing world. So these are real projects and they become central to the students' lives, not just their education, actually. Um, but they also represent, I think, a really important transition. They, they go from participating in constructed exercises or constructed activities for academic for academic purposes. So everything they've done in the first two years has been constructed to teach them something. It hasn't been real and open ended. 
And this transition, I think, is the hardest point in our uh, education of engineering. So for the why first, why is that? Why? why? Well, making that shit all their education up until that point has been about, as I said, completing problems or solving problems that have been constructed for them to teach them, you know, weeks four to six of the syllabus, or to to assess certain particular learning outcomes. And but now these are real problems. They're out in the world doing real engineering, and it's a it's a mental shift. And for the first six weeks of semester one, these new third years are actually like rabbits in headlights a bit, stunned. I mean, overwhelmed by the complexity of the project, um, the adapting to a completely new way of working, a, a new relationship with us. We're no longer people telling them stuff. We're people doing things with them. So that's a big change too. And I, I think the most overwhelming is they're responsible for something real. At the end of it, you know, if, if they're on the formula student, they know that in two years they have to have something that they've got that's come out of their brains into existence to drive around Silverstone and compete against other universities. It's a whole lot of pressure and responsibility they've not had before. So I think in week seven or eight, they really realise where they are. They can sort of come up for air and look around and say, actually, they, so it sinks in that no one's done this before. It's not a constructed exercise. You're doing it for the first time. You're leading it. You're responsible for it. Um, but the key thing is we have faith in their ability to do it. And sometimes I think that's the first time they've actually felt that we've got faith in their ability to do something important. In the past, we've had to have faith that they're going to pass a CA or they're going to have faith that they're going to pass an exam, but not that they're going to go and break a world record in the Nevada desert in a machine they've designed and built themselves. It's a whole shift. So. I think the light bulb moment for students is this is the first time that they realise they're entering a profession, the first time they're doing undertaking a real challenge. Um, and I think for many of them, it's the first time they're confident they can achieve something. And the first time they've had a little glimpse of the future, two years time when they graduate, the kind of work they'll be doing. So for that, for that reason, I think halfway through this first semester is a light bulb for our third years in many ways. So it's obviously a process that's again fascinating. The net's got such a complexity as well. Like lovely to similar to Catherine's example. So you said lots of things around, you know, you're instead of teaching to them, you you know, you're working with them or alongside them. And that faith is very interesting as well because you are from a discipline that's very science and rational oriented. And you know, that that's so interesting what you say about faith. So what is it that you think happens by week seven, which is just gone past week, that can call, um, contribute to this slight yeah. gradual process? But at the same time, is it just that it converges, you think, by then? Yeah. I think it's by that time. They've, mm -hmm. they've been able to understand the problem they've been set design and build a low cost wind turbine to bring energy to these tomato farmers. And as they start to do their background research in the first couple of weeks, standard year three activity, they, they're used to that, right? Go and do some internet work, some library work, actually fully define this problem. They start to realize how broad and complex it is and be overwhelmed by it. Um, and then they get, as I said, they have the problem working with Siemens now that they're worried about these professionals meeting them every week and how they're looking in the eyes of the professional and so on. Mm. And they keep just building up this, but obviously living in the problem for a while, mm -hmm. you gradually become to get used to it. And the more research you do, you gradually be able to break it down into manageable chunks, work mm -hmm. packages, then tasks. 
And the other thing they have to, the main mental shift though, is they ask us a question, what do you want us to do this week? And the answer they always get, which annoys them incredibly, is what do you want to do this week? Or <laughs> what do you think I should go and re re research this? Well, do you think you should go and research that? That really annoys what must be irritating to them, but they gradually, the penny drops and that's the light bulb going on. It's up to me to organize that. And it's up to me to ask for support from the academic supervisor or industrial supervisor or technicians when, or other academics who expertise in the field to go and find that when I need it. No mm -hmm. one is going to meet, say to them, it's week four, so now you'll find a folder on Blackboard which has got everything you need in it. What they'll say is, it's week six, you're a quarter of the way to the finish line. Um, where, no, sorry, an eighth of the way to the finish line. Um, where are you up to? What are you doing? How, show prove to me that you're moving towards that line. So, so that's that's lovely. It's like you it's you you giving them permission to really think for themselves and, and be act as professionals. That's a lovely insight. Shall we hear from other Matt as well from your lightbulb moments? I'm Matthew Flynn. I'm a lecturer in the music industries in the music department. And in some ways, my lightbulb moment is a different approach to a lot of the issues that Matt's just outlined in terms of most of my teaching career has been spent. Um, helping aspiring young musicians and music practitioners develop their careers, which is in a very complex and very uncertain uh, environment. And in some ways, the major difference is there is no endpoint. They're constantly there's projects within projects that they do, but in terms of career development, there's no endpoint. Um, and my own journey into teaching was unusual. I came in from industry um, with no sort of student experience of my own initially to, to compare it to um, and then taught for a good couple of years before I even went and did a, a master's myself. So I was sort of learning as I went uh, and so yeah, making it up as I went along a bit, which is a bit like career development in the music industry, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and then you've got good, the good analogy. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got this. And so then you have a real responsibility because it's people's livelihoods and careers that you're talking about. Um, there's also the, you know, the general sort of statistical um, overarching uh, notion that not everyone's going to be successful. In fact, the vast majority of people aren't going to be successful and have the careers that they want. And so there's that fine balance of facilitating ambition and managing expectation and trying to get that right. And so for me, mine's more of a, it, it's, yeah, it was a light bulb moment, um, but it took me a few years teaching to realize it, but it's still something that I have to to come back to all the time. It's more of a guiding principle. Um, and because of the just the, the amount of um, different facets of being a, a music professional in terms of you know creativity, um, the, the need to collaborate and to form projects. And then each of those projects having, um, whether you're aware of them or not at the time, sort of commercial, contractual and copyright consequences in terms of how you define those projects and choose those things. The pace at which you, <laughs> bring people's awareness of that um, forward, I suppose, was the thing that really I had to start to get right because coming in as mm -hmm. a practitioner, you know an awful lot of stuff. And initially I felt like I needed to communicate all this mm -hmm. to my students so they understood what I understood mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. And I found that that was what my job was to do. It took me a few years to realize, actually, that's not what my job is. <laughs> my job is to teach them what they need to know at the point that they need to know it and build from a very sort of root base 
set of building blocks and build, you know, on on concepts. Uh, and that sounds quite obvious now that I say it, um, but it's something I have to remind myself of all the time. Because again, my my sort of you know when you start talking about contracts and copyright and the complexities of those particular things and how that relates to each individual's career path and it can be different. For you know, I can have a seminar of five or six students, uh, and each of them or a project where where you've got a couple of songwriters, a producer, um, a couple of session musicians. Each one of them in the project, or even though they're all engaged in the same project, will be in a different copyright contractual commercial situation. So trying to get a, a consensus around. These are the fundamental principles, but these how they deal with each of you need to understand how they affect you differently. Um, it's quite a, a balance to strike. And so I constantly have to remind myself to not get too far ahead because I can, you know, obviously I've got an enthusiasm for the subject, so I can just run off if I'm allowed to. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. in design, in design and um, from a lecture point of view, but particularly in seminars, um, it's that's the chance really where you do get to inspire people, I think. To really light 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 a fire under them in terms of, but also you've got to make sure that you don't overwhelm them, and so it's just for me it's always that okay, what needed in the moment now in terms of delivery, what do these students need to understand now for them, not what I think they need to know, and just constantly reminding myself of that is the is the is the light bulb moment that that I keep coming back to always. So you keep checking the light bulb as well, which is how hot is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that, yeah, that's lovely. When Matt said something about uh, not having so much knowledge and enthusiasm himself, but not that being what not trying to get it all out at once and overwhelming them, but realizing you have to stage it and deliver it as needed, was something that chimed exactly with uh, with with my teaching as well. I mean, I could I couldn't support that more strongly. I think that's exactly right. It was. Um, it's always difficult to to gauge how much to deliver and when, so that I, I think it's enough to keep that fire. You've said you've lit a fire under them in your seminar work, Matt. Enough to keep that fire going, but without making it too overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, and also patient because you have a range of students with different abilities and different levels of enthusiasm, and they learn at different paces. And so trying to you know strike that mid midway balance between who are already quite active industry-wise and quite engaged and again it's one of those industries that you learn by doing predominantly and making some mistakes and reflecting on them and learn, learning by them um, and not dissimilar to the you know in terms of what you're trying to encourage your third year students to do Matt in terms of that project development it's it's the same but it's just in lots of ways it's just more longitudinal um, and so trying to give them those skills of of reflection and and encouraging them to go out and it's okay to make mistakes uh, and trying to get them to be bold enough and brave enough um, without overwhelming them with the with the quite demoralizing statistics, particularly this year, um, of of what's going on, uh, and trying to encourage them and keep them focused on it, this won't be forever. There will be opportunities, and opportunities will come. In fact, there's still opportunities now. Um, yeah, and getting that balance right is always the thing I'm most mindful of. Great. Okay. So that's yeah, that's lovely to hear about the these moments. One of the other things, um, obviously, Treasure Islands, as in, you know, the contact time, precious time with students has been a little bit different this year. But uh, even before before COVID or, or now, if, if I wanted to ask you to what would be the teaching prop or the pedagogy that you would take to your Treasure Islands that you couldn't re live without that you think would be really essential to to give students a good learning experience in your subjects so, and what would it what would it be 
I guess uh, for me, having an online platform, now I'm saying Teams here, but any kind of learning platform like that, where you can do collaborative teamwork and have projects that you can build and develop on them would probably be what I'd want to bring to my desert island. Because I think for my students, and what it sounds like really from listening to both maths, um, is that there's when you have group based projects that they can work on and that they can see as being applicable to you know real life things um and that makes through things and having to take some type of responsibility for that problem solving so that they're not just simply um being given the question and then told how to answer it um when there are all these variables that you have to negotiate whether they're the music contracts or whether they're engineering projects or whether you're learning to to put together a, a film uh, product um that you need to have this kind of collaborative space where you can start to kind of hammer out these ideas so that would be my pick <laughs> mm -hmm. great and i think from your example and from the live on moment what i got as well that it's not if if you talk about treasure island metaphor like little mini islands within your big island but in a way that also the islands are bridged so for in your example it was quite important that the groups knew what the other ones were doing because that was motivating as well which i think is really interesting whether technology enables you to do that or not i think that bridging is so important for students because i think i think um you know they're gonna have to go into the real world and work with people and and sometimes if you're at university you can kind of coast coast through to some extent you don't necessarily have to be that student that's super eager and driving themselves but if you're not aware that other people are doing that then you don't under, understand what opportunities you're missing to take advantage of everything that's being given to you and i think it's the students that really click in that there's a lot of opportunities here. And if I take advantage of them, it's going to put me a step ahead. Those are the people that tend to be able to go on and, and succeed. And I think sometimes if you were a student that fell into seminars that were always weak seminars, you could miss that boat. Um, so being able to mm -hmm. say, look at what your other people mm -hmm. your age are doing and look what you could be doing. It's just so important. But Great. Thank you. Mechanical engineer, Matt? Well, I'm suddenly become the guy who starts a conversation, uh, something from a pedagogic research paper, some, something I thought I'd never become. Be ready, you know, be ready. If I can't do it on this desert island, where can I do it, Sunday? So it's a, it's a 1986 paper called um, Cognitive Conceptions of Learning by someone called Thomas Shaw in America. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read his quote because th this underpins, I think, everything I've done in learning and teaching over the last 10, 15 years. Um, the teachers, this is a quote from that paper, the teacher's fundamental task is to get students to engage in learning activities that are likely to result in their achieving the desired outcomes. Okay. Constructive alignment, so far so obvious. Um, then he goes on to say, remember that what the student does is actually more important in determining what is learned than what the teacher does. Again, so far so obvious, such a simple idea. I think many of us forget that all the time. I mean, you know, when I'm when I'm traipsing across campus to go and give a lecture and I'm, I'm worrying about my lecture slides, what I'm going to say. Um, and nowadays I'm going to worry where I'm delivering it live or pre-recording it, what support resources, all these things I'm worrying about me. And so often you've, I think you forget about 
what it actually is the students will be doing in order to learn this stuff, apart from sitting down listening to me talk for a couple of hours at a time. Um, so I, I, since I discovered that paper, I, I think all my teaching has been guided by this simple idea. So now whenever I adopt a new module or design a new one, I, I start with the principle of what do I want students to be able to do at the end of this course? Not what do I want them to know? What do I want them to be able to do? Um, and then the first thing I do is don't think about lectures yet. I, I, I build a foundation of activities, things students will be doing with each on their own, with each other to develop skills. And that's my first point. And after that, I'll then fit in lectures, processes of acquisition, maybe feedback opportunities. I'll fit those in around the activities. So I think in short, I think I've developed a, a process where I don't I throw in some lectures to underpin learning activities. I don't throw in activities to spice up a lecture course, which I think I've been guilty of in the past, and I think I can see that happening. So my aim is still to teach the same syllabus, but in do, do it in a way that engages students in activities that deepens what they're learning, deepens their learning, but at the same time allows them to develop some important skills. So if I was going to take one thing to Treasure Island, it would be that principle. I guess it's mm -hmm. active learning at its heart. Yeah, but yeah. It's, uh, but yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Lots such a nice, a, an absolute beautiful summary of learning design as well. But yeah, so active uh, learning. Yeah. If my I, I'm most I thing I like most about that is that my colleagues listening to this podcast, if any of them do, their eyes will be rolling back in their heads to hear me quote a pedagogic research paper. That's not that's not something I do all the time. Oh, that's beautiful. And I think you know your summary of that as well. It was yeah, it was spot on. Matt, music, music industry, Matt. Yeah. What is um, your teaching proper pedagogy? Well, it's been interesting to hear how, how um, Catherine and, and Matt have been talking about engaging students in a collaborative way um, and in both in both their examples and devising activities for them to do. Um, and certainly one of the things that has been very notable for, for the music industries in the, in, since the pandemic is the loss of sociality. And whilst digital communication technologies have been very welcome, in what it's made me really realize is it's no substitute for being in the room with other people. And so I'm going to make despite how I mean, Catherine's example of using teams is 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 fantastic. And it's something I'm certainly going to go away and try and uh, adapt and modify to my to my own for my own purposes. But I'm going to make a case for the pen and a provocation. Um, I think sometimes Great. the best best teaching prop is a marker pen and a whiteboard and a provocation to students to engage them in a conversation. Um, and there's so many things that I can provoke them with if they're reading their music industry news and those types of things. I literally need to go in with a question and that can fulfill an hour seminar, an hour's lecture. And sometimes occasionally I'll just leave a week open where I can do that and go and talk about whatever's current, whatever's happening, because the demand on all aspiring musicians and music practitioners is to be aware of what's going on in the industry and be aware of trends and themes and, and things. And so just to test that knowledge and what you get out of that very often. Um, when students start to express themselves, one, you get a sense of uh, their level of understanding and where you're up to and the, and the gaps that you need to then fill. But also you, you get some great debate and, and some great ideas and some, you know, and an expression of beliefs and values and those types of things, which are really important in, in, certain, in terms of career development. And I still haven't probably found a better way of, of, of facilitating that type of debate yet, it, you know, in a very low tech 
simple format um, mm-hmm. and just go in and get people to start engaging in conversation, get them in the room and engage them in conversation. And in lots of ways, that's very often very a very beneficial way for me to, to, to deliver what I need to deliver. The parallels, with, the parallels with engineering design are incredible there, the way mm-hmm. you were speaking there. It's getting students around the table to discuss an idea together and therefore refine and evolve that idea just by conversation with the most basic marker pen on pad sketches mm-hmm. is exactly the same foundation for engineering design as it is in your teaching, Matt. So that, that's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think what I find so interesting is you guys are right, like a lot of what you do is so is so practical in some ways and, and sitting down with a pen and paper and just kind of looking things out and working as groups in that is so important. And um, in some ways, even though I'm not doing it with a pen and paper, it, it's what I'm doing as well on Teams. I think um, in, in some ways with media students, there's, what they're interested in, what they've come to university for is to use media. So they want they want to do all that technical things. And, and a lot of our students are super comfortable with social media, but they don't know how to use any type of platform that would be used in actual industry. And so in some ways, what we're doing is we're kind of combining this idea of introducing them to you know programs that they they would actually maybe use in industry so uh, getting them to use um teams but also getting them to use things like um uh, davinci which is a film editing software and, and things like that and even though right now everything's remote <laughs> um when when we're actually doing this we're usually all in a room together so it's kind of like you know sitting over a blueprint only your br- blueprint is you know obviously films it's it's going to be it's digital in some ways but i think what's nice about all of the groups is talking about the way these students need to communicate with each other and to share information in order to make sense of these bigger problems um and it seems like we're we're all doing that but we're we're taking it from you know our different media approaches, um, whether that's or sorry disciplinary approaches, whether that's engineering or music industries or or media studies. So it seems like there's a lot of similarities in that. Great, yeah, fantastic. So we're on the Treasure Island. We have had some fabulous learning, um, collaboration, problem solving. I am also guessing guessing that you you might sometimes would like to withdraw and have a bit of a respite and rest. So I'm going to ask when you're not teaching, what would your luxury item be on these treasure islands that you would like to relax with? Well, my my husband asked me what I wanted to take. Um, I said I'd like to take him, but unfortunately he's not an item. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But he's good crack, so it would have been too bad. But um, he came up with the item I should bring with me, which is uh, he thinks I should be able to bring my whole kitchen and that should be counted as one item because I do love to cook and it's uh, my stress reliever. So plus, if you're on an Lovely. island, you need to you know cook things. You don't want food poisoning. So that's my pick. I'd bring my kitchen with me. That sounds lovely. What would you what do you like cooking? pretty much anything um i love cooking indian food or korean food or um uh, i like doing kind of the canadian stuff or uh, just like to experiment 
At this point, can I request that I'm stranded on the same desert island? Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that sustenance is very important for yeah. learning, you know, in the Maslow hierarchy. But also, I think when we talked about collaboration, the best collaborations and chats and discussions happen over dinner table. Um, so, yeah, and especially Matt, with your international project, that would be a lovely dinner table to have when I'm sure you would have loads of different kinds of food and... We need the wind turbine too, right, to get to run the cooker. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> so what would be your luxury item? Well, when I first read it, I thought, I, what, what do I spend a lot of my time doing as I'm decompressing from work? And I'm on Twitter a lot. But then, but then I reread the brief, and it said to relax. And one thing Twitter doesn't help me do is relax; it does the opposite. <laughs> so, uh, so I threw that away. So then, then I started thinking about what I, what do I do to relax? And over the summer, I've I've always been a cyclist. I'm a cyc I've been a cycling commuter for many years. But I realised I've I've lived in Liverpool for 34 years, and uh, I know South Liverpool, south of the university, like the back of my hand is where I've always lived. Mm -hmm. um, but I very rarely go north of the city. So I knew the North End very, very badly. So uh, I started what I called just to myself until this moment, um, urban cycling safaris. Um, so I'd pick a postcode, get on my bike and cycle there. Fantastic. And you know, I discovered some fantastic places in areas that maybe I didn't, I didn't ever even thought of going before. They're not on my normal routes, particularly the faded industrial heritage in Bootle, South Sefton. Yeah. And then the Sefton coast, uh, which I'd only ever been to. Crosby mm. before so oh, I've really discovered some new stuff so so I thought right I'm going to take my urban cycling safaris and transfer them to a desert island cycling safari so I hope it's big enough Tundi for me to at yeah least that's fantastic yeah I think safaris <laughs> can have a space on on desert islands and I love this postcode lottery idea as well I think yeah. that's that's so I think that has helped us in Covid so many people have said it's been uh, we had a discussion last week with some other colleagues and they were saying, you know, they've learned the shopkeepers' names around themselves. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a lovely connection with the local area, isn't it? it OK, it is. thank you. Yeah, okay. that's brilliant. OK, music. Matt? Well, mine's obviously music. <laughs> um, <laughs> so and, when I was making the case for old tech in terms of a teaching prop, I'm going to make the case for new tech. It's not quite an item, but my Spotify account, I don't think I could live without really. Um, as someone who's always been obsessed with music, uh, I would say take my record collection, but it's probably not, you know, uh, I don't use it anymore. Um, or my CD collection, or all those various different things. Everything now I want to listen to is contained in Spotify. So I could provide the background music to Catherine's dinners um, with, with my spot. But yeah, that's the, the, the one thing And then you that... can cycle it off afterwards. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <laughs> but certainly, yeah, that's the one thing that I couldn't really be without. I'd need to have music on the island um, whether to, to, um, to keep me sane. Okay, lovely. Oh, thank you so much. That was brilliant discussion.